0: Hello and welcome to Horror Origins. I am Matthew Tanzik. Thanks so much for joining me again. Um, This, of course, is the podcast where we're going to be discussing horror firsts. We're going to be uh, dissecting their genesis and learning a bit more about the history of the pop culture horror world that has sprung up around us. This is episode lucky number 13, where we're going to be taking a uh, look at the first story to introduce the zombie uh, as a horror monster to popular audiences. Um, the author, in this case, is Henry S. Whitehead, and the story is Jumbi. Uh But before we, break, before we jump right into things, let's break it down. Let's figure out what we're going to be getting ourselves into. Um, we're first going to take a look at the author that created the idea, or in, in this case, sort of brought it to popular uh, attention. We're going to look at the climate that the concept was born into, the story itself, and then the final, finally the legacy that it's had since uh, its creation. So, let's get going. Here we are, the zombie. Well, um, let's yeah, let's begin with the author. Uh, Henry S. Whitehead was an American uh, author born in 1882 from New Jersey. Pictures I've seen of him show uh, a scrawny-looking guy with a large, sort of inverted egg-shaped, balding head with massive, dark eyebrows. He's he's he is uh, he's a funny-looking gentleman. Um and and al- unlike a lot of other writers he didn't start out in another profession and then come into writing he he was pretty much a writer right from the get go he graduated Harvard in 1904 and uh he was involved in his church quite a bit and he was involved in writing short fiction he apparently was pretty uh athletic guy uh, despite his appearance and uh, for what it's worth um there's a lot of speculation uh whether or not uh, he was homosexual or not. This is something that the internet really sort of seems to want to dig its teeth into uh, in many cases. Uh, they have similar sort of conversations and topics when, about Lovecraft and, and other authors. I was not able to find any kind of concrete or at least a meritable paper or essay talking about that. So, you know, take it with a grain of salt, but it is something that comes up. With Mister Whitehead, he was a regular contributor to Weird Tales magazine, and he was sort of in the periphery of Lovecraft. And um, in my mind, he was sort of like the sort of second tier Weird Tales contributor. He did it quite a bit, quite often. He was beloved, but he's not one of the first names you think of when you think of Weird Tales. You know, he's not one of the big three. He's maybe one of the big seven. (laughs) <laughs> or something like that. Yeah. So uh, the climate. Well, B, um was first published in Weird Tales in 1926, right in the heart of the Roaring Twenties. Uh, and I don't know about you, but when I think of the Roaring Twenties, my mind conjures up images of flapper girls, prohibition, Tommy gun wielding gangsters, movies now with sound, and uh, you know the fantastic Art Deco movement. In actuality, perhaps, the 1920s were, you know, it was definitely an age of incredible change in this country, uh, in America. People were flocking to cities like never before, and perhaps, you know, they were romanticizing locations far away from the crowds and the pollution, like the story we have here in Jumbi. The country was quickly becoming more of a homogenous Certainly consumer culture was becoming a new thing and a major thing. So you could buy the same consumer goods at one end of the country all the way to the other end of the country, New York to California. People were listening to the same music across the country and the same slang was being used across the country. You have much less of a regional dialect thing uh, as as much as you did before the 1920s and this, this advent and explosion of consumerism. And with that commercialism and consumer consumerism, I think that tales like Jumby showcased an exotic location and an exotic culture that many maybe only heard about vaguely, which was appealing. And it let audiences put themselves in a provocative, you know, steamy, balmy sort of jungly climate and, and location far away from the society that they knew. And, uh, and yeah, and sort of delve into this imaginary, supernatural world. Um, And which is why maybe this story, unlike others that were submitted to Weird Tales at the time, was so beloved and was sort of stood out against the others. Okay, the story itself. We're going to talk about it in very broad strokes. It is certainly a very fast read. Feel free to to look at the show notes uh for this episode i'll provide the links for the best sources that i found to read the story uh, certainly if you if you find it elsewhere please post but um i'll provide it for you guys despite being such a popular one with weird tales fans it honestly when i read it i thought eh, that's kind of interesting but it wasn't really anything that stood out to me it has as you might imagine a bit of an attitude of you know Racism when it talks about the native peoples of the West Indies, uh, although the narrator is among, among those people, he counts himself among those among those people. We sort of get it through the lens of a Westerner, and uh, yeah, that can be kind of ugly at times, uh, especially when they're talking about like the differences between black and mixed race peoples, um, or the disgusting, <laughs> nauseating habit of counting how many generations you were away from your last black or white ancestor kind of thing. So if that turns you off, you know, maybe skip this one. It it definitely it, it hits you in the face right up front. Um, the story has three parts. The setup, uh, there's a section kind of about the lore of the West Indies and the Jumbi in particular. And then, you know, what I'm going to call the happening or the moment the supernatural brushes up against our main character so the introduction we meet our our stand-in as a reader uh, a, a self-described virginian of virginians named mr granville lee he's somewhat crippled from mustard mustard gas in the first world war and uh, he's been ordered by doctors to spend some time in a very different kind of climate. So we find him on the island of St or the in St Croix. He's re, he's sort of recuperating there. His lungs have not fully recovered and it's kind of an interesting character right out the bat. And I would have loved uh I would love to be able to tell you that, you know, his backstory and in the war and his being crippled by mustard gas pays off in any way in the story, but it alas is not mentioned again at all but you know the setup is nice i think he's got sort of an interesting twist to him but then you find out he doesn't really contribute much as we go forward poor mr lee is really just a a narrative frame here and he's used as a bridge for us as the readers to meet the actual main character of the story which is mr da silva but it's <laughs> you know like i said not a bad start um in intro we learn a bit more of the history of the islands and the people that live on them. There, There is some interesting commentary about those that come from French colonies and how they see themselves different from those that come from Dutch colonies. It's certainly nothing I knew about, so to sort of put myself in the shoes of people at that time are kind of interesting. The word zombie, as we know it, even is used as an alternate word for what is referred to as a jumbie on uh, this island. So it's kind of interesting, it kind of struck me when I was reading along, oh, there's the word zombie, that's that's what we're talking about, and then, you know, it's just sort of a different dialect, there's different linguistic things, and a cult- little bit of a culture change and play, so we're still talking about the same thing, but in this case, it's referred to as a jumbi, not a zombie, but it's the same, you know, you say potato, I say potato. We learn about Lee's friend, Da Silva, he's a He's an intelligent, albeit kind of egotistical man on the island. He comes from money and education, and so he sees himself as sort of like the the local aficionado intellect kind of guy and he, on 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 the on the island. And he's someone that the main character, Dr. Lee Dr. Lee, Mr. Lee, comes to to sort of wet his appetite about the occult. So the opening of the story is the two of them are talking on the porch. They're drinking something called a swizzle or a cold swizzle, which is kind of an interesting thing. It's it's like an alcoholic mash of ice, which in my brain conjures up kind of like a boozy snow cone, which might be awesome if you are in a hot tropical climate like uh, in St. Croix. Anyway, um, it's here where we launch into the second part of the story, which is the lore section, where Mr. Lee is really interested in the occult. He wants to know more about these sort of strange things he's heard about on the island, but people are too afraid to tell him about. But De Silva is not afraid of that stuff. He'll he'll indulge Mr. Lee and tell him about his experience with the Jumbi and why he counts himself as a believer in the Jumbi, despite maybe your assumption that he wouldn't be because he's sort of an educated man. The Jumbi is more or less... Uh, a bizarre spirit attracted to death um at least in this story it does i mean certainly there are uh cultures and folklore and and things in the real world that use the same term but as far as uh mr henry whitehead's perception of it um that's what it is it's it does not necessarily portend one's demise But rather, the Jumbi appears close to the deceased, and from seeing it, you can know that someone has died. Uh, In De Silva's account of when he he saw the Jumbi in his past, we learn that he recognized one of his old friends was dead um, from a set of ghostly footfalls that he heard coming to him one night as he was sitting on the porch. The Jumbi, however, is not the manifestation of the soul of the departed. So the footsteps we hear initially are really just kind of a a spirit we're led to believe. The Jumbi act independently of it. They are something else, we find out. Uh, Da Silva, in his narrative, says aloud to the spirit of his friend that he understands that his friend is dead. They had this pact that they would tell each other from beyond the grave that one of them had died. And then... He says to the spirit he wants it to leave, and it does so. There seems to be a matter of supernatural fear at play, too, in this story, because De Silva knows what the ghost is, right? <laughs> he knows that there's nothing to fear from his the spirit of his friend, but he confesses his complete terror in that moment anyway. So it doesn't seem to jive up with his sort of rational narrative. So I'm thinking maybe there's something else at, at play with these supernatural things. Uh, the, the Jumbi, as, as we come to find out, come to him later on that same night. He's notified by a, a boy about his friend's death who comes running to the house. And then he gets his stuff together and he heads out to his deceased friend's home. And it's on the road, on the way to his friend's home, that we get the first interaction with the Jumbi. And it's it's a pretty good one, so I'm going to read it to you now. When we had arrived almost at the Moravian church, I saw something ahead near the roadside. It was then about 11.15 and the streets were deserted. What I saw made me curious to test something. I paused and I told the boy to run ahead and tell Miss Iverson that I would be there shortly. The boy started to trot ahead. He was Pure black, Mr. Lee, but he went past what I saw without noticing it. He swerved a little away from it, and I think perhaps he slightly quickened his pace just at that point. But that was all. What did you see? asked Mr. Lee, interrupting. He spoke a trifle breathlessly. His left lung was, as of yet, far from being healed. The hanging Jumbi, replied Mr. De Silva, in his usual tones. Yes, there at the side of the road were three jumbies. There's a reference to that in the history of Stuart McCann. Perhaps you've run across that, eh? Mr. Lee nodded, and Mr. Da Silva quoted. There they hung, though no ladder's rung supported their dangling feet. And there's another line in the history, he continued, smiling, which describes a typical group of hanging jumbi. Maiden, man-child, and shrew. Well, there were the usual three jumbies, apparently hanging in the air. It wasn't very light, but I could make out a boy of about twelve, a young girl, and a shriveled old woman, what the author of the history of Stuart McCann meant by the word shrew. He told me himself, by the way, Mr. Lee, that he had put feet on his jumbi, mostly for the sake of a convenient rhyme, poetic license. The hanging jumbi have no feet. It is one of their peculiarities. The legs stop at the ankles. They have abnormally long, thin legs. African legs. They're always black, you know. Their feet, if they have them, are always hidden in a kind of mist that lies along the ground whenever one sees them. They shift and weave, as a full-bodied African does, standing on one foot and resting the other. You've noticed that, of course, or scratching the supporting ankle with the toes of the other foot. They do not swing in the sense that they seem to be swung on a rope. That's not what it means. They do not twirl about, but they do always face the oncomer. I walked on, slowly, and past them, and they kept their faces to me as they always do. I'm used to that. While terrifying, the real terror occurs only after Da Silva reaches the dead man's home. All right, he sees the June beyond the road. he continues on, and he goes to Iverson's home, who's his dead friend De Silva says that he stays in the home with the bereaved for a while, and then later on in the evening, um as it's becoming deep evening, he goes to leave. But as he does so, I think the most bizarre thing in the story happens, and it could be that i'm I'm missing something profound here, but this just seems like a bolt from the blue. <laughs> it's it's really quite weird. It's a, it's a short paragraph, so I'm going to read it to you. Um, yeah, it, this one struck me by surprise. Here we go. I started to walk down the steps toward the old woman. That scant half-moon had come up into the sky while I'd been sitting with the ladies, and by its light everything was fairly sharply defined. I could see that old woman as plainly as I can see you now, Mr. Lee. In fact, I was looking directly at the poor creature when I came down the steps and fumbling in my pocket for a few coppers for her. For tobacco and sugar, as they say. I was wondering indeed why she had not by this time come to her feet and making one of her queer little bobbing bows. Cockroach bow to fowl, as they might say. It seemed this old woman must have fallen to a very deep sleep, for she had not moved at all. Although ordinarily she would have heard me, for the night was deathly still, and their hearing is extraordinarily acute, like a cat's or a dog's. I remember that the fragrance from Miss Iverson's tuberoses, in pots on the gallery railing, was pouring out in the stream that night, making a greeting for the moon. It was almost overpowering. Just as I was putting my foot on the fifth step, there came a tiny little puff of fresh breeze from somewhere, in the hills behind Iverson's house. It rustled the dry fronds of palm tree that was growing beside the steps. I turned my head in that direction for an instant. Mr. Lee, when I looked back down the steps, after what must have been a fifth of a second's intonation, the little old black woman who had been huddled up there on the lowest step, apparently sound asleep, was gone. She had vanished utterly, and Mr. Lee, a little white dog about the size of a French poodle, was... Bounding up the steps towards me with every bound, a step, a leap, the dog increased in size, it seemed to swell out there before my very eyes. Then I was really frightened, thoroughly, utterly frightened. I knew that if animal so much t- if, if that animal so much as touched me, it meant death, Mr. Lee, absolute certain death, the old woman was a sheen. Of course, you know lycra- lycanthropy. Wolf change, of course. This was one of our varieties of it. I do not know what it would be called. I'm sure... caninothropy, perhaps. I don't know. But something, something, first cousin once removed from lycanthropy. And on that downward scale, Mr. Lee, the woman was a ware dog A were-dog. She was a were-dog. A little white French poodle turning into a massive white beast flying up at him from the bottom of the fifth step. <laughs> um, the, the were-dog comes at him. He draws his cane and he smacks it in the face with one blow and he sort of wobbles a bit on the stairs and uh, looks away for a second as he's catching his, himself from falling and it's gone. Um... There are reports uh, from other, the, other servants in the area uh, of some sort of padded feet sort of fleeing towards the center of the island. Um, but he, he manages to sort of smack it and it runs off. Um, <laughs> Lee uh, is impressed with the story. The two agree to have a, a fresh drink um, <laughs> to, to sort of study themselves after the sort of scary ghost tale. And that's it. That's the end of the story. I, uh, I, I feel like this story might not only be one of the firsts for zombies, but certainly might be also the firsts for where French poodles. I feel like there must be something I'm missing, because there really isn't anything in the story that would seem to suggest that this is coming, why this is. An additional supernatural thing that's been tacked on, right? So we had the ghost of his dead friend, explained by the pact they made to notify each other when they died. We've got the Jumbi, which are the sort of three silent ghost-like things that sort of watch uh, those associated and come to sort of the, the death scene. They don't interact at all. And it's always curiously the same three Joombi, right? There's the the old woman, the child, and the young girl. So, I mean, was was the old woman Joombi also the old woman that turned into this were dog? And why? Because at no point in the in the sort of lore part where we learn about the Jumbi is a werewolf part of it. It seems wholly different. I, I don't understand why And if it is part of the Jumbi lore, that certainly is something that has fallen away with the modern incarnations of the zombie. It, it, it just seems very bizarre to me. So if I am missing something, please comment. Give me some, some, uh, some school me here because I'm, I'm struggling. Uh, on reflection, I, I think some of the creepiest writing comes out when, we, when he first sees the hanging Jumbi on the side of the road. And when he interacts with the old woman on the stairs. Like I was saying before, this is a very short read. So when you do come to these parts of the story, take take your time. Don't fly through it. Really try to immerse yourself in that moment. And I think you'll appreciate it a lot more. And you know, after reading this, I'm amazed that the zombie, white were-dogs notwithstanding, um... I'm surprised they have come from this concept. They seem so unlike what we know nowadays. You know, there seems to be so much more circumstance and spirituality associated with the originating concept that it feels such a far cry from the much more brutal automatons, the shambling hordes that are zombies today. You know, um... Have a read, and let me know if you feel the same i I don't really see a whole lot of connection, except maybe in that the jumbies seem to be sort of silent corpses and they're sort of observing death and humanity and in the common zombie that we know nowadays, they are sort of brainless, willless you know um automatons that are just sort of more of a force of nature and are not really a malevolent thing in and of themselves so maybe in kind of tone they're similar but but that's about it they certainly don't float on mist and there's certainly a lot more than just three uh you think about zombies nowadays now they come in packs of hundreds but you know this story was a definite hit when it came out um it became a fan favorite in weird tales where it debuted and then it became the title of Whitehead's collection of shorts, uh, which was called Jumbie and Other Uncanny Tales, which was one of the first books published by August Derleth's Arkham House Publishing Company. So it was sort of like his first foray into publishing, and he chose Jumbi, uh to be sort of the, the front, front uh, vanguard book for, for his publishing company. So it really must have made a splash with, re- with readers. Since then, well, here's a concept that has just steamrolled into an unstoppable horde of brain inspiring monsters, uh, like the vampire, um, but perhaps even more to a greater degree the zombie has become almost ubiquitous with horror, like it's just everywhere. Well there have been many forms of undead in folk tales all over the globe, you know, you know, the Druger, the revenants of various types. It is likely the zombie that springs first to your mind when you think of horror movies or you think of the the sort of classification as undead uh, when you're thinking of monsters. You know? And why is that? I I can only speculate. Perhaps it has that new monster smell, right? Um, It's... It's not been around that long, certainly comparatively recent when, when you're looking at things like werewolves and vampires and ghosts, uh, more of the sort of deep European folklore of that stuff. Zombie comes to us much, much more recently, although it itself might have a much older um, tradition. But something about them just seems to strike a chord with us. You know, it, it contains just the right amount of gore and passion, passionless violence, it's something we can see ourselves in. We inherently can see ourselves in that. And since zombies, as we have sort of morphed them, have become something that is us. It is society gone to the birds. So the next time you see a group of people, you know, staggering around with their cell phones in hand, or the next time you watch a preview for the next zombie apocalypse movie that's coming out, um, think back to uh, Mr. Whitehead, you know. Our old pal Henry S. Whitehead and, and the fire that he helped to stoke, bringing this Haitian jumbi where, where it is today. It's really, it's really quite something. Hey, if you enjoy this podcast and learning about the strange works of horror that have brought us to where we are today, I implore you, take a moment to rate or review the show. It'll help more people find out about it, and the more people we can get interested in this stuff, the better. And if you appreciate podcasts that are advertisement-free and you want to say thanks or you want to make a recommendation for the show, feel free to email me at author at or click on the contact button on matthewtancic.com, and links for both of those things will be in the show notes, so you don't have to worry about finding them on your own. And lastly, if you want to stay up to speed on this or any of my other creative projects, uh, I am on Twitter. It's pretty much the only social media platform Uh, you could find me on. I tweet at tanz444. That's T-A-N-Z 444. Feel free to reach out. Um, I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, thanks for joining me.